0: Bloomberg audio studios
1: podcasts radio news
0: you're listening to the bloomberg balance of power podcast catch us live weekdays at noon eastern on apple carplay and android auto with the bloomberg business app listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on youtube
2: we turn to the poll kaylee this is a pretty important uh, a, a roughly monthly drop that we're doing right now with our partners at Morning Consult. This is the Bloomberg Swing State Poll, seven states. Joe Biden loses a mall to Donald Trump if that election were held today.
3: Indeed, on average, by five points, Trump would be victorious. And even Joe, if you add third parties into the mix, candidates like RFK Jr., yeah. Trump still wins.
2: Pretty fascinating stuff here. We saw a bit of a, a ray of light for Joe Biden in Michigan. Uh, he's still losing the state by a small margin, though. And the big headline, Kaylee, is too old. Uh, that's different than really old. You might think he's real too old means he shouldn't be the president, right? He's too old to have the job.
3: Well, this is what's interesting is 8 in 10 voters in this poll did say they find him to be too old. But even among those who say they plan to vote for Biden, uh-huh. 7 in 10 said he fits that description. So I guess they'd still think he's too old, but they'll vote for him anyway. This is probably a question best put to Eli Yokely, who who okay. is joining us from our partner on this poll, Morning Consult. He's a U.S. politics analyst there. So, Eli, should our takeaway here be that they may find him old, but a lot of them still plan to, to vote for him? Just how problematic— this poll look for the biden campaign
4: well i think it's a big problem nobody wants to be called too old clearly that's weighing on the president and i mean even in our national tracking this is weighing on him more than it is donald trump nationally a good chunk of voters about half think donald trump's too old but they're far more likely to say that about joe biden what we did in this survey was we kind of forced voters to Pick. We said, do you think Donald Trump is too old? Do you think Joe Biden is too old? Do you think they're both too old? And where voters are inclined to go is Joe Biden. Clearly, this is something that is a big problem for him. Now, one ray of hope for him here is the fact that a good chunk, like four in 10 voters said they they think both of them are too old. And that might give Biden a bit of an opening as we're moving forward. You know, Donald Trump has been campaigning for president for the Republican nomination for a while now, but he's not as dominant as he will be in the coming months as he takes the mantle, uh, likely of the Republican nominee. I think you saw President Biden on uh, late night TV trying to flag to voters that the other that the former president mm-hmm. is pretty old too, and so. I think the president uh, the current president might be leaning on some of these other descriptors like dangerous to try to remind a lot of these voters yeah. from 2020 why they didn't like Donald Trump in the first place.
2: Well, talk to me about that. Uh Eli, it's great to have you back. By yeah. the way, I don't know what would you rather be too old or too dangerous, too dangerous? Seems like that might be a bigger problem. <laughs>
4: I mean, whatever we've been talking about these surveys, I mean, the way we've been kind of thinking about the election isn't necessarily about issues. I mean, it's almost about senility versus right. criminality. And which of those two things is going to matter more to the electorate? Right now, Donald Trump has an edge, but I'm going to bang the hammer on this nail so many times. The American people have, are not tuned into Donald Trump like they used to be. And the coming campaign and the job of the Biden campaign in the coming months is going to be able to remind voters why they didn't like Donald Trump four years ago. And I think what we're seeing on the legal front on the the danger bucket here is going to take center stage in the coming months as Donald Trump is at trial after trial, defending himself from a range of serious felony charges. And not to mention the kind of talk he's doing on issues like NATO kind of changing the America's place in the world. There's a good chunk of the electorate that is leaning isolationist, but it's not everybody. It's not even everybody in the Republican party. And we saw that stick out in the open ends questions. I mean, the very first thing we ask is what voters are seeing, reading, or hearing about these candidates. And without any prompting, a good number of folks listed NATO And so people are starting to take note of some of these things but it's just not as widespread as the biden campaign needs it to be in order to damage donald trump uh, ahead of november
3: well as we think about the nato question and as we've considered the u.s relationship with our allies how congress members of it for example view that a lot of them say we need to be focusing greater attention on issues here at home on our own borders and on that point eli both donald trump and joe biden are making trips to the border today and that's something that came up in the poll the issue of immigration a majority we found still hold biden and democrats and responsible for the migrant surge we are seeing there but i found it interesting blame for congressional republicans and the trump administration went up five percentage points Is that because the border bill tanked in Congress? Is that telling in some way that voters recognize the role Republicans played in that?
4: Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing nationally is that more voters than ever since we started tracking see a crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. As As more voters have seen the economy improving a bit, more voters are listing immigration as their number one issue in the 2024 elections. And as this process in Washington has played out, what we have noticed is fewer voters are blaming foreign conditions, economic conditions, war, and more are blaming Washington. And Joe Biden and congressional Democrats heed the bulk of that blame, but it's not just them. Since we did this last survey, since this bipartisan border deal fell apart on Capitol Hill, it does appear that some voters are taking note that Republicans are part of the problem too. It's not a lot, but it's some, it's about one in five voters. Now that's up five points about congressional Republicans. Some voters are blaming the Trump administration more than they were a while ago. And, you know, this is happening in Arizona, places that are close to the border, but also across the swing state map.
2: Fascinating. Um, I was talking to our own Michael McKee earlier, Eli, about something called the observer effect. I know it's something that uh, you pollsters are very well aware of. The act of observing something can frequently change the way we look at it and therefore polling results. If you keep asking people if Joe Biden is too old, they're going to keep saying he's too old, right?
4: Yeah, that makes sense. I And part of that is that he is old. Like, people know that. They're not dumb. They know that the president is in his 80s. He has slips on TV from time to time. There's reporting coming out about him that's not so good. Um, The question we're going to be watching is Donald Trump has slips, too. I mean, he's referred to running against President Obama, who's not been in the White House since 2020 Mm -hmm. or since since 2016. He's referred to um, Nikki Haley as the Speaker of the House on January 6th. These things are not so salient right now. But as more and more people tune into this, I mean, a lot of voters, at least a few weeks ago, weren't so sure that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee for the Republican party. People are not paying attention to this like we are here in Washington. And so when Donald Trump takes center stage in the coming months, he's doing his rallies, he's showing up in communities in some of these swing states, uh, it's gonna be a reality check for him and whether voters uh, see him as a tool just like they do President Biden.
3: Yeah, and of course, Joe, a lot of this will probably depend on whether or not Trump is a convicted felon as we get closer to the election.
2: Which is something else our polling has brought
3: forth. And indicates a lot of these swing state voters would not, in fact, vote for him. In the case of
2: a conviction, the the number went up in case of jail time, which is looking pretty unlikely after that Supreme Court ruling yesterday.
3: Yep, so it's something we will continue to follow in this poll. Again, we're doing it almost every single month, and we'll be speaking to Eli Oakley almost every single month for that reason, U.S. politics analyst at Morning Consult. Thank you so much, Eli. Eli, for joining
0: us. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: So a big day for Donald Trump yesterday. This is something that we found out live at five o'clock right at the top of Balance of Power, uh, the late edition news from the Supreme Court. It's decided to take up this immunity case, and that means that it will hold off. It will delay the trial, Jack Smith's trial, over the January 6th uh, case here in Washington uh, for some many months, potentially. It depends how long they take to rule, and that's why I'm glad to say Ty Cobb is with us today. It's always a fascinating conversation with the former White House special counsel who spent time uh, at the Justice Department. Uh, and Ty, it's great to have you back with us, a veteran of the Trump White House what does this mean for the trial? First of all, Ty, will there be room for it to happen before the election?
5: Joe, I don't think so. Nice to be back with you. Um, the the court's action, um, while it accelerates you know, the Supreme Court consideration of the issue, will definitely delay the trial at least, you know, uh, two to four months uh, and mm-hmm. quite likely, you know, four more months. So, uh, that doesn't really give Judge Chutkin uh, much time to schedule the case prior to the election, and I don't see how that she can't. Um, that doesn't mean um, that you know it's impossible, but I I really think it's highly unlikely that we'll see a trial pre-election. Um, so that seems- uh, that definitely that definitely is to Trump's advantage. On the other hand, you know the you know people that characterize this as a win or you know, whatever. It's definitely favorable for Trump, but he really didn't win anything uh, yesterday. It's mm-hmm. just that the court's going uh, have to the, have the last word on this. Um, there are many reasons that the court might want to do that. Uh, it's probably one of the most serious issues in the 250 years of our republic that's ever gotten to the court. Uh, it involves the mm-hmm. core uh, foundational element of our form of government, which is separation of powers um, and uh, it's a it's a never before considered issue. So um, I don't think people should you know view the granting of cert as somehow you know a partisan issue. It's a it's it's exactly the type of issue that should go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court should be the final sure. word on. On the other hand, they didn't have to do it, uh, and I think that's what frustrates a lot of observers like myself because I think uh, there was uh, plenty of time for the court to play cleanup. Uh, when and if Trump is convicted, as they would definitely get a second bite at this apple.
2: Isn't that something? So with that said, is it possible this trial could get underway and be underway when people vote in November? So that's certainly possible, but I just think it's highly unlikely uh, and impractical.
5: It is also conceivable that the the trial could start the week after the election. Um, You know, certainly if Trump loses, um, you know, there would be no uh, impediment to that, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, and if he wins, you know, there's no real legal doctrine that prohibits uh, starting the trial. Then, uh, on the other hand, I think there would be another host of issues uh, uh, if he was the president elect uh, that would yes, you know right. bounce up and down to the Supreme Court again and delay
2: it well into uh, his term should he win. Well, that's a very real view uh, from. Ty Cobb if he is in fact elected couldn't he just fire everybody and defund these cases to make them go away
5: Well so he doesn't have to really fire anybody he just has to you know appoint somebody who's willing to be his shill at the justice department and dismiss the cases And okay. yes that's exactly what that. he would do Yeah it's exactly what he would do
2: So we're left in a world then it seems like uh, where Alvin Bragg is going to have the last say. That might be the only trial, the hush money case in New York before this election, and it's the only case,
5: unfortunately, that fills Trump hand, Trump's hand when he argues political persecution and uh, you know uh, <laughs> prosecutors out to get him. Uh, Bragg ran on the on the promise to get Trump, and you know most legal scholars think this case is. You know, an incredibly distorted use of the statute and very weak, and it's certainly not going to lead to his imprisonment. So uh, I think we're about to have, you know, um, you know Trump uh, on the courthouse steps uh, morning and night uh, for, you know, a month, and uh, that doesn't do anybody any good.
2: You know him better than most people, or you did, uh, Ty Cobb. Can he actually spend that to his advantage the way he has in the last oh, couple of certainly. months, making this a fundraiser and a way to get on TV every day? Most certainly.
5: I mean, he'll get a lot of free coverage and, uh, you know, it works to his his advantage. And, you know, there's there won't be a single new fact (laughs) presented that anybody who hasn't followed this for eight years or six years uh, since this payment happened um, Mm -hmm. um, doesn't know.
2: I realize this isn't a ruling specifically in his favor, as you said on the outset, but. They had to be popping corks at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, no, night, definitely. Right? No,
5: no. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, Trump's whole play is for delay and, you know, he got that. Um, now, yeah. you know, I, I think it was an inevitable possibility that uh, given, you know, the fact that this case didn't didn't arise until December, that the Supreme Court would look at it. Um, and uh, while they didn't have to, you um, they they elected to, and it's quite appropriate for them to elect to do so. This is exactly what their role is. Uh, so yes, yeah. but Trump is Trump is happy, and Jack Smith is frustrated.
2: You were among those, uh, I believe, to tell us that this appeals court ruling was strong enough that the Supreme Court had no need to step in here. Were you surprised in the end they did?
5: So yes, I was a little surprised, but not after the not after the lengthy delay. I mean the. The lengthy delay that they took to consider whether or not to grant the stay or to or to uh, grant cert as they ultimately did uh, suggested that there was some discomfort on the court. And understandably, because one, keep in mind that the, D- the D.C. Circuit uh, did write a forceful and comprehensive opinion. I, I think it was more than mm-hmm. sufficient to go forward with the case. But uh, they did they did take an approach uh, where they said, you know, I don't know what the line or whatever the line may be. Uh, between official acts and criminal acts, um, it's clear that the allegations in this indictment uh, are so far over what that line would be that uh, we don't need to parse that. And I think that's where the Supreme Court is uncomfortable. I think they will um, I think they were concerned about letting the trial proceed unless that line was drawn mm. for the benefit of the litigants and for the district court. And in fact, you know, a a potentially, um, problem, uh, problematic result could be that this that the court sends the case back down to the district court for actual factual findings uh, on that uh, issue.
2: Wow. I've got less than a minute left, uh, Ty. Great conversation. Will the Supreme Court, considering the nature of this case, as you've clearly framed here, uh, the significance of this ruling, they would not be compelled to weigh in in an expedited fashion?
5: Well, they keep in mind, they have expedited. I mean, you know, there aren't more than, you know, five or six cases in history that have moved this light speed, uh, but it, they, so. they're not moving as fast as they did in Bush versus Gore. They're not even moving as fast as they did in Nixon. So, um, yes, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's that's a problem. On the other hand, this came up in the, you know, at the late end of a term. They squeezed it in. Unlike yeah, unlike any right. other case they've accepted recently, they squeezed it in and they're going to resolve it, you know, as, as expeditious as they can this term. So that's good.
2: Really appreciate the insights today. Ty Cobb with us here just hours after that Supreme Court ruling, former special White House counsel in the Trump
0: administration. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
3: And what's interesting, Joe, is we've had a lot of news in the last 24 hours, to say the least, from Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell to a funding deal to even yesterday, the Supreme Court deciding that it was going to take up Trump's immunity challenge. A headline just crossing the terminal now. After news yesterday, in addition to all of that, that Illinois was kicking Trump off the ballot Mm -hmm. on the grounds of the 14th Amendment, Trump will remain on that ballot as a judge now stays That ruling, this is according to people familiar with the matter, say Illinois Judge Porter is issuing this order to pause this Trump ruling until the appeals process ends. And we also know, Joe, that this is an issue that the Supreme Court is also dealing with. Just a few weeks ago, they heard arguments in this 14th Amendment case.
2: Yeah, that's right. And a ruling that could come at any time, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're waiting for a lot of rulings now from the Supreme Court as they take up the immunity case as well. A major development uh, late yesterday that we spoke earlier Uh, with Ty Cobb about, it appears, Kaylee that Jack Smith's trial here in Washington, uh, unless there's some small miracle, will not have time to see its way through, at least before the election. It could be underway when
0: people
3: vote,
2: but not likely concluded.
3: Well, and as we learned once again in Bloomberg's latest poll with Morning Consult today, the Mm -hmm. outcome of Trump's criminal trials very much could impact how likely voters are to support him. Come November in swing states, more than half say they would not vote for Donald Trump if he were to be a convicted felon.
2: Yeah, we wanna get into this. Our latest uh, Bloomberg News Morning Consult swing state poll with our panel. Let's assemble the panel. Rick Davis is with us, Bloomberg politics contributor and Republican strategist alongside Democratic analyst Lincoln Mitchell, lecturer uh, at uh, Columbia University. Also runs a cool substack that we'll tell you about here as well. Great to have both of you with us. Uh, Welcome to the Thursday edition. Rick, you've been watching this poll since it was born several months ago. How would you characterize the state of this race for Joe Biden deemed too old in this contest and losing all seven swing states to Donald Trump? Yeah,
6: there's no question. It's uh, really bad news for Joe Biden. No appreciable change other than, you know, in a couple of states like Michigan, where he's drawn closer, but still behind by a point. Uh, I, I'd like to switch to uh, issues. I mean, we've talked for a long time about, you know, this Biden economy, Bidenomics. He's got to convince yep. voters that he can manage the economy. And what we're seeing in in this poll in these states, the economy still significantly outweighs uh, the, the the border as the number one issue to voters. And nowadays, that actually might be in Joe Biden's best interest because. There is some indications, uh, improvement by five points in this current survey of respondents saying that they think the economy is getting better. So some of what we're seeing and predicting, we've been talking about this a long time, that there's a lagging impact with voters around an improving economy. Maybe we're starting to see some of that lag come in and probably at a key time, because at this stage, if I were a betting man, I'd say the economy still outflanks border as a as an issue for voters in these states. But it's uh-huh. got yeah. but Biden has to take credit for that improvement.
3: Well, so Lincoln, let's continue this conversation on the economy because Rick is right. You could see um, some of the numbers coming into more in the president's favor, though still this poll showed only 31 percent of voters think the economy is heading in the right right direction, at least on a national level. It does improve their thinking as we ask them about what they feel locally. They're more likely to say their local economy is doing okay. But when you're if you're the Biden campaign looking at only essentially a 31 percent feeling good about the economy, wh- how much time do you realistically have to improve that? Do you have all the way until November or mine's gonna be made up on that in the more immediate future?
7: Well, if I might make a few points, you touched on this. It's very notable in that, in that poll because the people view the economy in their state better than nationally and in their, their local, I forget the exact words, but essentially their town or city better mm-hmm. than the state, mm-hmm. which means the closer they are to a lived experience of the economy, the more favorably they view the economy. And the reason for that, there could be lots of reasons for that. Obviously what they're getting in the media is a big reason for that. The thing about the economy is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we could say that the economy is the biggest indicator of whether or not the president will get reelected. Strong economy, president's party wins, or the president himself wins. Poor economy, the president doesn't get reelected or his party loses. Today, asking people what they think of the economy is a surrogate measure of partisanship. And one piece of evidence I would offer for that is that Republicans over the course of the month of January, 2021, went from thinking it was a great economy to a terrible economy. And that was simply because we had a new president. And that's a long way of saying that mm-hmm. Biden, I think still has some time by, by late summer, people's views about the economy are gonna solidify He still has some time to raise those numbers. And while this is like in every election, the most important issue, it's not necessarily the issue that moves the undecided voters, even in these states. So to just, I don't have the data in front of me, but it struck out, it stuck out at me that abortion was ranked as the number one issue by 6% of the voters when they could only list one. That's actually pretty high. So where are those six? If those six are in the undecided camp because they're, you know, suburban white folks who kind of want to vote Republican, but aren't happy about Dobbs, those are people who Biden can get. So I completely agree with Rick that the way to understand this poll is by looking at the issues. But simply, Joe Biden pounding his fist on the table and saying, hey, the economy is better than you think, is not a winning yeah. uh, a strategy. Overall, there's no way to spin this as good news for Biden. The, I've, <laughs> from very early on to this, I said this is not gonna end with Trump being convicted. That was always, even with all these legal cases, and even with, in my view, his obvious guilt, that was always a fantasy. This is going to be a very close election, it's still doable for Biden, but he's got a lot of work to do. And the communications piece of this has to improve, not only on the economy, but on a whole bevy of
2: issues, including going after Trump and reminding people how bad it was when he was president. Unfavorables are brutal, it seems like for everybody here, Rick, 64% in one state here for Donald Trump. Uh, and when I say everyone, I'm including Kamala Harris. And we don't talk about her very often, At some point, Donald Trump's going to choose a running mate. She's going to have to stand for a debate. I I just wonder to what extent when people talk about danger here, by the way, single digits in this poll consider neither of them to be too dangerous. (laughs) To what extent does Kamala Harris and a vice presidential choice that Donald Trump will make, if any, impact this?
6: Yeah, I think we're too early to tell. I mean, she's clearly not a very popular politician, maybe the least popular politician in America today. I mean, (laughs) Nancy Pelosi uh, did her no favors by getting out of uh, leadership because she used to be the least popular politician in America. Uh, And so I think this 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 campaign, the Biden White House, the Biden campaign is going to have to figure out what they want to do. I remember the the dog days of 1992 when we had, you know, uh, a really tough campaign with George H.W. Bush. And and it reminds me a lot of this campaign. And Dan Quayle was an anchor on that campaign. I mean, nice enough guy, but nobody thought he was the vice president that was going to help the ticket get elected. And, and there was a, a legitimate effort to try and unseat him as the candidate. And ultimately, George H.W. Bush said, my loyalty is what I, I treasure more than anything. And, and I guess he treasured that more than winning re-election. So that's going to be a test at some point. We'll talk about it a lot running up to the convention. But Democrats are going to have to look at this themselves and say, is this really the best ticket that we can put on the field of play?
3: Well, speaking of things we talk about a lot, we've talked a lot about the economy, obviously, Lincoln, but and and Rick mentioned this uh, a bit. Immigration, maybe not as much of an issue in the economy as uh, in these swing states. But Biden clearly is taking this issue seriously as he is at the border today. Donald Trump also is at the border today. They're a few hundred miles apart. Optically, who do these visits favor if Biden's visit doesn't actually come with any executive action, say any any, you know, real policy change?
7: Well, op- optically, it's Biden, it's Trump throwing red meat to his base. That always helps him. For Biden, I think this is, I don't think this makes any impression at all. I want to just go back to Kamala Harris and so make two, why very important <laughs> two very important points here. Kamala Harris is unpopular because Joe Biden wants her to be unpopular. Had he supported her the way Obama supported him, and had Harris's numbers been strong, which they would have been, the pressure on him not to run would have been extreme. The only way he was gonna to get to run for a second term was if Harris was unpopular. That's why he pushed her away. We just talked about the border. That's why he gave her that responsibility. A popular Kamala Harris was an enormous threat to Joe Biden. But That's where we are. Where we are now, this is important. There's no way they're taking Kamala Harris off the ticket. The idea that the Democratic Party is gonna take an African-American woman off of the ticket is just a complete non-starter, as it should be, because she is extremely qualified for this. But secondly, and I don't know if I didn't have time to read this entire poll, but every poll I've seen shows that among the non-Biden candidates, Harris is winning big among voters, among Democratic voters, to be clear. So in other words, if Biden doesn't run, It's gonna be Kamala Harris. But what that also tells you is that within the base of the Republican Party, she's still pretty popular. Biden made an enormous strategic error by not supporting Harris from the beginning. Hmm. There is real political talent here. This is somebody who won handily in a competitive AG race, handily in what ended up not being a competitive Senate race particularly. She can be very, very good, but Biden didn't have her back. Obama did have his for eight years.
3: All right. Lincoln Mitchell of Columbia University and Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Always great to have you both on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. I would point out that the House has started voting as they try to make their way toward passing uh, this funding deal, which essentially is just a continuing resolution so they can actually pass uh, the funding packages themselves. The motion to suspend the rules is being voted on now. We will continue to keep you apprised.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Chiming in now as the House does its work to avoid a government shutdown. Congresswoman, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming back to talk to us on Bloomberg. What do you make of this plan? Is this actually going to work? When we start working a week or two in here and we get to some of the more complex and controversial spending bills like Homeland Security, like the Pentagon, are we going to be talking about a shutdown again next time you join us?
1: That seems to be the uh, expertise of this Congress. I mean, we have lowered the bar so much (laughs) that we cheer every time they are able to kick the can down the road a little bit further. And, you know, this is something that should have been passed last September. And, um, you know, it's really unfortunate that we are governing in, uh, you know, months at a time, weeks at a time of um, funding for our government. It's Almost as if we're a banana republic. This is insanity. Um, but what I hear off of the Hill is that they think they have a deal on these six bills and they just need a little more time to put the finishing touches on it and also to give 72 hours for their members to review the content of the bill. My hope is what that really means is that they have resolved the poison pills that the conservative Republicans had put into the spending bills mm-hmm. and that. When they come back to um, actually take a vote on the bills, it will be something that is acceptable to Senate Democrats as well as to Democratic White House.
3: But probably not acceptable to those conservatives who wanted those policy writers in there. We've heard from a couple of them who are disgruntled. Even last night on Balance of Power, Joe and I spoke with Republican congressman from South Carolina, Ralph Norman, who called this deal an insult. To the American people, we asked him whether or not he thought Speaker Mike Johnson, having promised no more short term continuing resolutions and now delivering yet another one. If there would be a threat to his gavel like we saw uh, in Kevin McCarthy's case last year, should Democrats protect Mike Johnson if that were to happen, if for keeping the government funded and open as a consequence, he had a threat to the gavel? Would you advise your colleagues to help help him out of that situation?
1: I think Democrats, at the end of the day, always are the party that wants to govern. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there are some members of the Democratic Party who would, um, in this case, try to help here, because shutting down the government is a really serious thing Um, that affects Americans all across this country, people who are dependent on uh, their jobs in the federal government, people who are dependent on uh, the support that the federal government provides them. There are just so many people who are at the mercy of the politics that are happening in Washington. And I know that Democrats want to govern. So I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to step in and do what was needed in order to ensure that they didn't hurt the average American um, out there who who need their government to function properly.
2: Well, if they get this done, Congresswoman, there are questions about whether there might be hope for the supplemental request the president made for Ukraine, specifically also Israel and Taiwan. And we know what uh, a difficult time this has had passing as Speaker Johnson won't even bring it to the floor. Uh, but if this gets done, there are questions, maybe some optimism that that could happen, having seen Mike Johnson in the Oval Office just a couple of days ago. And I wonder... Uh, Congresswoman, following your career in Congress and at the Department of Defense, your thoughts on the CIA director being part of that conversation. They brought Bill Burns in to talk to Mike Johnson. Do you think he changed his mind?
1: I think they brought somebody in um, to basically underscore for Mike Johnson how important it is that uh, we support our allies and to help him have some facts and details that maybe make the case to the um, holdouts within his caucus. I do think, though, that while it's one thing to pass legislation that directly affects the American people and the domestic economic um, situation and the, the function of US government, it's a much steeper hill uh, especially given the uh, current environment, to pass a supplemental that sends money abroad in the eyes of the American people, and I, and I think that's a misnomer. To be clear, because a lot, when when they pass that supplemental, much of that money is spent here in the United States. But I don't know that yeah. there has been much leadership to explain that to the American people.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there are potential workarounds if the speaker isn't going to put a Ukraine aid bill on the floor, potentially a discharge petition, which Democrats have floated one of their own in order to have a vehicle to pass the Senate passed, uh package that included the funding for Israel and Ukraine. But also House Republicans are preparing a discharge petition. This is an effort led by uh, Republican Congressman Fitzpatrick. And it's it's their alternative plan, kind of defense only, no humanitarian aid with border measures within it. Should Democrats be part of that effort? There's been suggestions from some Democratic leadership that they are not on board with Fitzpatrick plan, but Fitzpatrick's plan. But if it gets the aid to Ukraine, why not take what you can get?
1: Because that's a reasonable thing for somebody on the outside to look at it. But when you're inside that pressure cooker, when you say there's no humanitarian aid and there are border provisions, you've lost a part of the Democratic Party, which means that you have to make that up with uh, Republicans in order to get enough votes for the discharge petition. And that means that you're digging deeper into a Republican Party that has been instructed by the former President Trump not to support this package or any sort of package uh, that provides assistance to Ukraine. And there just aren't that many brave souls in the Republican Party, in my opinion, um, given, you know, basing that on the votes that have been taken to date. And so I I know uh, Um, there's been a lot of conversation about discharge petition, but I also know how hard it is to be in the majority party and sign on to a discharge petition because it is seen as giving power over to the minority.
2: Well, I can't imagine why you don't want to do this anymore, Congresswoman. (laughs) Uh, I have to ask you while you're with us, as a former member of the January 6th committee, the news we got from the Supreme Court yesterday, it broke late. The SCOTUS is going to take up Donald Trump's Uh, immunity challenge here presidential immunity which is going to delay maybe indefinitely jack smith's trial on january 6 here in washington dc if that trial doesn't happen in time for the election will the supreme court be to blame
1: i certainly hope that the wheels of justice um spin a little bit faster than what anybody is anticipating right now, because it's important that the American people go to the polls in the fall with an understanding as to whether or not what the former president did um, was uh, legal or illegal, whether or not he um, is at fault as found by the highest court in this nation. And um, I think that's an important piece of information for voters to have when they cast their ballot in November, especially if it looks like um, it's going to be he is the Republican nominee.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's not just this case that the Supreme Court is planning to hear in April. They also already have heard arguments in the uh, 14th Amendment case. We just saw in Illinois last night a decision at first to bar him from the ballot on grounds uh, of the 14th Amendment, the insurrection clause, uh, basically the judge making a decision that he did engage in insurrection, therefore shouldn't be able to hold public office. That judge has now stayed that, so he will remain on the ballot for now. But when it comes to this 14th Amendment question, knowing that you did serve on the January 6th committee and dealt with this this insurrection question yourself, how how would you hope the Supreme Court decides? Should they give Trump a chance to be on the ballot despite what happened on January 6th?
1: I think how I hope they decide is probably a little bit different than what I realize politically is uh, realistic on what they will decide. I think given um, their comments during the Colorado uh, hearing the arguments for the Colorado case uh, where Colorado barred him for the um, ballot. It doesn't look like they are going to find um, that it's okay for states to um, keep him off the ballot for having participated in an insurrection. But I do understand that the roots of that provision is to prevent somebody who couldn't win at the ballot from being able to take uh or to to take uh the position by force and to provide some level of accountability and and punishment for that kind of behavior. Um and unfortunately, I don't think that um, it's it's probably going to keep him off the ballot.
2: I don't wanna get you in trouble here, Congresswoman, but do you still communicate with your former colleagues on the January 6th committee? Did you text each other after that headline last night?
1: I, I won't get into the specifics of um, when we talk to each other, but we do stay in touch. I think you can't go through uh, the intense Um, experience that we had on the January 6th committee without building lifelong um, bonds that, you know, uh, we certainly stay in touch. And of course, we're all watching to see what happens here over the next few months and into this fall.
2: I know you share a lot of realities uh, having come off that experience together. Congresswoman, we thank you for joining us today. As the House does its work here to avoid a shutdown, it's good to see you, Stephanie Murphy former Democratic Congresswoman uh, from Florida. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.